You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. So welcome to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast, where each week an esteemed guest and I dive into a real life startup problem submitted by a listener or blog reader. What blog I hear you cry? That will be my blog at vickybrock.com slash blog. So the problem that the entrepreneur agony aunts will be tackling this week is an existential one. Two questions actually, we've rolled them into one and essentially it comes down to this. I'm afraid my business is failing. I've not got the sales traction. I've tried everything I can think of. I'm not out of money yet, but I am starting to panic. What do I do next? Well, joining me is Drow Tree, creator of Blip Photo, which at its high had BAFTA Awards, a worldwide community of photography users, corporate partners to die for, and a solid base of investors. So, uh, welcome, Joe. Thank you very much. It's the first time I've been called esteemed and an ant, I think, <laughs> in the same sentence. Well, I think you're probably uniquely <laughs> positioned to shed some light on this problem, yeah. as perhaps am I. Um, do you want to give us a quick overview of your story? Of my story? Okay, so I'm a designer by trade. That's kind of what I've spent most of my working life doing. I started a design agency in the mid-90s, just as the internet became a thing. Um, and that ran very successfully for 15 years or so. And then I suppose kind of almost ironically, I um, started this side project as a distraction from the day job. And it was a personal project to take and share just one photograph every day. And it was genuinely just something that I did for myself, shared with very few people. And it kind of mushroomed from there. So it, it exploded as a personal blog. We decided then as a company that we would... Um, take that on as a, as a pet project and turn it into a platform that anybody could sign up to and start doing the same thing, just keeping this visual diary of their lives. Um, did that in, I think that was, we released that in around about 2006 um, and it just, again, mushroomed from there. People told other people a sort of classic viral story. 2010, we won a BAFTA award for the for the site and it, would, it was doing more page views per month then than, than scotsman.com I think um, decided at that point we should give up everything else we were doing and try and focus on that entirely went out and raised some money having never done anything like that before um, wound down the agency and threw ourselves into it completely and then had this yeah roller coaster ride of um, growing to I think we were, we, we were well over a million monthly visits uh, towards the end um, yeah BAFTA award we had Steve Wozniak as one of our users um, I spent a lot of time raising money here in the States, um, did a deal with Polaroid, um, which was supposed to be our gateway to the US market, so um, we had the rights to use the Polaroid brand to promote our products. Polaroid didn't buy us, everyone seems to think that Polaroid acquired us in some shape or form, but that, that didn't actually happen, we just got the rights from them to, to go out and sell ourselves as Polaroid. Mm-hmm. Um, tried to do that without raising anywhere near enough money, mm-hmm. um, I think we had something like a £35,000 marketing budget to take on America um, didn't go quite as well as anybody. In fact, actually, it went even worse than everybody thought it would. The kind of worst-case scenario was a lot better than, than, than what actually happened. Oh, no. um, <laughs> ran out of money, couldn't get any more investors excited, and had to pull the plug. Wow. Yes. <laughs> That's really interesting because that's very much... I mean, it's a different way around to how I kind of went about it. I, mm-hmm. I, I went out almost with a plan for world domination Mm. and a set of rules and I followed most of those rules and 
whilst it was hard and it felt hard, I seemed to make the traction in the right order that I was supposed to, you know, the, the same commonality yes, did not yes. raise enough money. Yes. Absolutely did not raise enough money and that was a killer because it couldn't go fast enough and I couldn't stop raising money for long enough to work on the business, mm-hmm. which was also a massive problem. That, that was a huge theme for us as well. I mean, we raised in total, I think we raised about 1.3 million but it was done in this kind of very piecemeal fashion. So our first raise was 200K, our second raise was 100K, yeah. our third raise was about three or 400K. And like exactly what you yeah. say, you, you would raise the money, have a big sense of relief, focus on the business for a couple of months, and then suddenly realise yeah. you're back out raising money again. Exactly, and yeah. I did that for best part of three years. Um, I mean, the business longer, but that whole permanently raising money for three mm. years. So it was only when I'd raised enough money to not have to worry about that for about nine months. Mm that I came up, looked about at the business, started talking to customers and went, oh no, mm. <laughs> we've got a product market fit problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we didn't have a technology problem, mm. and probably like you, the underpinning technology was great. Absolutely, we were, yeah. We'd got some great customers signed up. We'd done yeah. some great pilots. We were on paper moving in all of the right directions. Mm. But because I'd been distracted by the raising money, mm. I didn't see we had a bigger kind of existential crisis which was people just weren't that into it mm. in the format that we were offering it sure. i mean what what was the barrier you you, you obviously you know you've got a million users was the barrier that it wasn't turning into revenue or did you overextend yourself um so there were there were a number of things so you know if you think about the classic sales funnel um, at the narrow end of the funnel we had everything absolutely right so if when, once we'd got somebody to come in sign up and post a photograph from that point onwards all the metrics were a dream um, so, you know we, our, our, our churn rate after um, about two months of, of somebody using the site was less than two percent I mean it was mm-hmm. tiny and our conversion to paid membership which was uh, the, the core of our revenue model was in, in double digits consistently and which is kind of unheard of for a freemium thing getting getting into double digits yeah. is very very unusual um, so all the issues we had were at the wide end of the funnel and I think what we realized over time was that you had to be a wee bit crazy to to, to, to want to use this thing um, <laughs> there, there were some huge sort of psychological barriers that new users had which were um, you know my, my life's not interesting enough my um, photography is not good enough or this is far too much of a commitment for me having to take on this thing to post mm-hmm. a picture every day. That's um, really interesting then, the barriers, because I think one of the things I failed to understand and that ultimately led to the business with me in the CEO-ship, because unlike you, my, your business wound up, you had mm-hmm. to take it, you had to take it through its death throes, yes, um, yes. whereas I went to my board said, we've got a problem they said, yes, it's you. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, I left that business, so did not have that same ending. But True. I think that the, the uh, same driver is there that is often behind so many businesses failing, which is you're not getting the sales traction, which is a symptom of you're not overcoming a big enough pain. There's not the mm-hmm. urgency. The sales cycle is too long. People are just not that yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah. And, you know, we were taking data from large enterprise retailers and having to clean it and do all this kind of thing. Mm. So it was really heavy lifting Mm. and really slow. Our our buying unit turnover was faster than 
our sales cycles. So mm-hmm. sales would drop off midway through. And it wasn't that you have to be a bit crazy to use it, but we it was complex and it was a complicated problem with a mm-hmm. lot of people mm-hmm. around the table. And we just didn't have the time and we didn't have enough money behind us for the fact that we didn't have the time to be a problem. Sure. Have you come across any examples where um, it's worked out differently, you know, where people have had that same existential crisis of like, oh my goodness, we're not getting the traction, people are just not that into us, mm-hmm. what do we do next? And yeah. have actually solved it. Have you come across well, any I other think those? I think the classic local example is Fanjul. I mean, Fanjul, prior to being Fanjul, was, was hubbed up. And they had this, um, as I remember anyway, it was a, basically a platform where you could bet on the on the outcome of news stories. So it's a bit like some pubs have this list on the, on the wall of who you think is going to die next. And everyone puts money into a pot and whoever, you know, whichever famous person dies on the list first, everyone takes all the cash. It was a bit kind of like that. And I, and I, I, I remember speaking to Nigel about this at the time when they just kind of pivoted to Fangio. And they'd realized that they had a bunch of users who were hugely addicted to the product in, it, in its current form. But they tended to be very kind of unsocial, not antisocial, but they didn't have lots of friends. They were the type of people that liked sitting in their rooms doing this thing on the computer, but would never tell anybody else about it. It was their kind of little secret. So they realized that although they had a very captive, engaged user base, um, they weren't going to help them spread. And there, there weren't a lot of people out there gagging for this thing. So they, they did the, you know, the very bold thing and actually just sat down. Before, I think they were at South by Southwest when they did this, sat down in, in somebody's back garden and said, right, we've got a huge problem, what are we going to do? But they had the benefit of actually having quite a lot of fuel in the tank still. They had the opportunity to do it. Yeah, and I've heard an example. Um, I went over to Next Door in San Francisco, and they'd originally started out as some kind of, not sports gaming, but something in the mm-hmm. leisure sports space, I can't remember what. And they'd been, they'd just raised $100 million, as you do in, in San Francisco. And they'd basically realised their technology didn't work. They, they realised that we just weren't in, that into mm-hmm. it. The $100 million business that they thought they could create, they didn't. Mm-hmm. And they actually went back to their investors and said, look, we've screwed up and we give our money back mm-hmm. because they were really early on. Okay. And the investors said, no, you're a good team. We bought in the team, mm-hmm. not the product. Mm-hmm. Um, spend the next eight weeks coming up with something better. And that's mm-hmm. literally what they did. They matrixed it out. And they went through idea after idea after idea, looking for stuff that was suitably scalable that mm. they could do that wasn't being done. They were they were really um, were really really methodical about it, but they had fuel in the tank. Mm. And I, and I you know from my own experience, and I'd be interested in yours as well. That 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 difference of when I was looking and thinking we didn't we don't have product market fit here. I'd got about four months left and we took everything apart. We put mm-hmm. it all into the middle of the table. Mm-hmm. We looked at our IP. We looked at our core components and how we could maybe put all of that back together in a way that we point it at somebody else and solve mm-hmm. a really specific problem. But I was so conscious that it was the last roll of the dice sure. for me professionally mm-hmm. and also in cash terms that that was very stressful um, and ultimately, I didn't get the back in I needed mm. for that. Did you go through anything like that? Did you try stuff like that, or were you literally so cash starved at that point? I, th- I think I think we were so cash starved that we didn't do that. But I think we also thought and believed that something was going to come along to give us that that big break. I mean, we're in a, we're in a diff- quite a different space to you because we were very much business to consumer. We were. 
you know, trying to reach this mass kind of um, audience of, of ordinary people on the street. And if you look to other things that have been successful and, you know, a good comparable for us, of course, is Instagram. Um, fundamentally and functionally, Instagram didn't do anything wildly different from us. The ethos and approach and stuff was, was quite different. But Instagram had two big breaks. They had the first big break, which was, um, I think it was Jack Dorsey or one of the other Twitter founders was thinking about investing in Instagram. So when Instagram first went live, he posted something on Instagram and shared it on his Twitter account. And of course, his Twitter account had gazillions of followers. Yeah. And so the, so the tech community suddenly took notice of um, of Instagram and started using it. And I can remember this, distinctly remember this period where the only people I would see using Instagram were people who were a bit geeky and kind of in the tech world. And then, Those early adopters yes, that can be yeah. really problematic because yeah. you think you've got traction yeah. and you build a strategy based on the evidence you've seen from that group and then yeah. it turns out not to be your exactly. customer base whatsoever. Exactly. Well, then, then Justin Bieber came along and started using Instagram and he was the kind of crossing the chasm moment. Uh-huh. And we, we kind of felt that we were we were just waiting for that thing that would that would cross cross the chasm for us um, and polaroid strategically was the thing that we were hoping would help us do that because it was a a big very very well known brand and this was polaroid's first move into doing something online to something social um but i think i still think that could have worked but we would have had to spend a lot more money than we had and a lot more time chipping away at that story yeah, and it's that, it's that. I don't know about you, and I'd be very interested in how personally you felt about this, but I kind of had these very intense few weeks, I think, um, like a bad sleep of sort of semi-mania, where I was just trying to think up anything and everything mm-hmm. and just come up with something yes. that would make this work. And, you know, I'm, I'm not... I can recognise I have enough self-awareness to go, I was probably slightly insane whilst mm, doing mm. that. But it was being... It was that in, was being driven by an, a, a, a desperation to make that work. I mean, did you do kind of have something similar? Or how, how did you physically, personally handle that period? Um, yes. I mean, myself and my co-founder, we, we did, and with other people in the business as well, we had lots and lots of those moments of trying to figure out what we could do to, to, to break this wide open. And yes, and lots of sleepless nights. But but I think a lot of that energy was, was focused certainly laterally on making the Polaroid deal happen, which took, I think, slightly, I think it was actually exactly a year and a day of my life from the moment I met the CEO of Polaroid and decided in principle we should do this to us having signed all the documents. So a lot of my energy was ploughed into mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, into dealing with lawyers and you know reading yeah. very complex license agreements and getting approval from my board and and all that stuff so we were kind of thinking this is the thing that's going to do yeah. it for us and every all our energy and emotion I suppose went into that moment and that's really challenging because that's a, a, a long-term complicated thing you weren't in control of many levers mm. we had less time we chose to focus on a we, we, we matrixed it out, like, who's got the biggest pain? Mm-hmm. Who would pay for that pain? Who is a really simple buying unit? Whose pain can we solve? Is there anybody else doing it? Can we do it quickly? Can yeah. we do it yeah. cheaply? And can we integrate with something else? All of those things were criteria that were basically about short-termism, mm-hmm. not necessarily now at this point what is going to build us a million-pound company, which, mm. you know, the big vision had been, this is like, what can we build and sell and prove value before which, we run out of Which money. I think is a really important thing to do. I, mean, I, heard, I heard something um, a few weeks ago, which um, I kind of knew, but it was, just, it was quite nicely articulated. And I think it was something like, um, make a thing that people want rather than try and make people want your thing. Yeah. 
And and it, when I do this again, which I will, I will very much follow that idea um, and that principle. But there's another side to that, which is that if you're not personally passionate about the thing you're building and actually building something you want yourself, then I think you're going to fall over. I think you can be, you can almost be too methodical. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, my Blit Photo was very much a passion for me and the other people involved in the business. We loved it and we loved using it ourselves and personally got a lot out of it as users. But we weren't at all, I think, not methodical enough about were we building something that fixed a problem for you. Um, yeah, and, and that's so really interesting because I think I was too methodical. I, I went into the last one too methodical. Mm. Um, I had a passion for it as a consumer. I believed that, you know, I, sh I shopped in a way that was, um, I, I bought everything yeah, yeah. And, and sent it all back and I knew that the data must be wrong. But I wasn't passionate about fixing the issue of returns. Mm. I had found something clever. Mm. I was, you know, I was clever. I found an inefficiency yeah, yeah, yeah. and I built the technology to fix that inefficiency. Yeah. It turned out that the retailers did not give as much of a damn about that inefficiency because exactly. it wasn't coming out of their pocket. So really the silos continued and it, it wasn't that big a pain. Mm. Although it was, it was billions, it is still a logical pain. It's a huge pain. But mm. for the individual person who needs to buy you or product whatever that is they didn't care mm. enough and um, so that last kind of ditch trying to find something was about trying to find something somebody did care about and solve it we actually looked at trying to build a salesforce integration because that was quick and mm -hmm. easy and it it was yeah, to, yeah. to try to avoid all the stuff you had with the polaroid deal mm. where it becomes long and lawyers and we just we mm. didn't have enough time left for that um not in my view anyway um so we tried to do something quick and easy it's just I probably, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, but not taking my board with me throughout that rationale mm. meant that when I did present what I still believe was a decent plan, I scared the crap out of them. Mm. And this is a scary time. And my whole team, actually my whole tech team and data team were right behind it and everybody was working their backside off. Um, but it... it, it You are so all so deep in an existential crisis that... Mm. It's hard to remember who the really important people in the mix are, which is yeah. ultimately your investors and your board. And, and that, I think that's, that's a really important point. Um, I, I, there's an old saying which is something like, if you, know, if you want a friend, get a dog, your, your board is not your friend. And when you've taken money from other people, I think that's very true. I mean, we had some great people on our board that I could, you know, be very open with and we could, you know, really kind of thrash things out. But ultimately, when you're sitting around that table in a board meeting, in a form, formal board meeting, the other people are all representing your investors. They're not representing you and your passion and your ideas and your and your drive, you know. So it's a, it's, yeah, it's a, you should be very aware of that situation, I think. Um, and again, when I do this again, I will, I won't put that in place until it's absolutely necessary. Oh, that's uh, absolutely, I completely agree with that one. Mm. I will not build a board structure at all until, and almost until it's forced upon me. Mm. And then I will keep it small and I will yes. keep it balanced. We definitely over-governanced ourselves. We built mm. out a much bigger board than we needed to. And then that, that caused my demise in my role when I was having this exact uh, existential crisis about mm. I think I, I, I'm struggling to see how this can work mm. you know I take I was one person in five so I took that to my board and it's like well you know if you can't see it how it's going to work then we mm. need to you know swap you out for somebody that can yes um which kind of makes sense in some mm. ways although I, I felt I did take a plan you know I, I did take a plan in that in my view could have worked but um 
your when you are in this place, I suppose all you can do is buy yourself time mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. Mm. Um, you you mentioned that you just were you just tried everything in terms of getting money and it wasn't an option. Um, what what did you what did you do in those last few months beyond try to focus on the Polaroid deal? Were you out talking to other investors? I don't think there was any point where I wasn't talking to other investors. I think I, I kind of caught on very early to the idea that you should always be talking to investors, um, even ones who you weren't in the right kind of you know ballpark for at that point, because you 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 want to. So so when you when you meet an investor, they're they're always going to spend a few months getting to know you before they kind of think seriously about giving you some money or not. So you want that stuff, all that stuff to happen. You want to build up that relationship and that trust long before you actually knock on their door and ask them to give you some cash. Um, so I did spend a lot of time doing that. I spent a lot of time visiting investors, asking them for advice, letting them see quite openly what was happening within the business um, so that when I did go back to them, there was a, an open door there. We, we Because we had revenues coming in as well, there were... Um, there were ways that we could, you know, run promotions or do special offers or whatever to kind of, you know, give us a little bit of extra cash to to work with at certain points, which which often worked quite well. Um, but the whole our existing user base, our our community, who were the people that were really, you know, driving value into the site, they had to be kept happy as well as the investors that we had, shareholders that we had, and the new investors that we were courting for our, for our big, next big round of money and that's a very fine balancing act very very fine and we were the ones the founders and the and the kind of leaders of the community were the one the only ones who really cared about the community themselves everyone else just saw them as, as numbers and an asset to be and manipulated do you think in retrospect your market size like your possible total addressable market was just too small um do you think that you over focused on a core group too soon and that they gave you false information or they gave you a very biased information or do you think no yeah. no i think it was the opposite of that i think we i think we actually under focused on a core market so we just welcomed everybody in we said look here's this we described the function as the kind of classic focusing focusing on the what rather than the why so we said here's a here's a platform where you can come and post a picture a day and keep a daily photo journal come and come along and do it and what we found over time was that we had three kind of quite distinct user groups. We had um, quite serious photographers. Some were, some were professional, some were amateurs, but people that could take great photos and would really strive every day to, to take a good picture. Um, another huge group for us was, and this kind of became one of the core group, was, this is going to sound a wee bit sexist, but it's not meant to be, but typically women who were probably 45, 50 plus who got a huge amount out of the social aspects mm-hmm. of it. And, and this and is pre-Instagram. This is, you know, well, Flickr, it, it, is it its peak here? Yeah, no, Flickr, yeah, Flickr we, we were kind of around, we launched kind of about the same time as Flickr was quite mm-hmm. popular. Um, but Flickr was very much a place to dump all of your yeah. pictures. We were the place to take the one special yeah. picture that meant something to you. Um, so we so we had that group. So so retirees, typically women who would mm-hmm. use it for the social reasons, um, they would go and take lots of pictures, but they weren't focusing on taking great pictures. It might yeah. be a picture of a, a bee on the flower in their back garden, and you know something. That's a, <laughs> You're describing yeah. me, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> um, and 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 the third group was young parents, so people who were maybe late twenties, early thirties, who'd had uh, just had kids. And we're using it to keep a, a track of their kids growing up and share that with distant relatives and friends mm-hmm. and so on. So there were three kind of quite distinct groups and they were probably of equal size. But because we let that happen organically, anytime we said Blip Photo is for 
this per, this particular group of people, you would alienate two thirds of your yep. audience. So if we said it was for professional photographers or for you know accomplished amateur photographers, suddenly the, all the all the young parents are like, well, why am I here then? So it was very hard for us in positioning terms to try and put that wrap around mm -hmm. it. And is that because you were trying to position it retrospectively as opposed to with a very defined kind of go-to-market plan? Exactly, because it happened organically. We didn't, I didn't build this thing in the first place intending for it to become what it became. I built it because I wanted something and wanted a bit of fun. Mm -hmm. And then saw other people that wanted the same fun. And then afterwards, when I started learning about how you position yourself in the market and you know, all those kinds of things, then I tried to, to plug that on or wrap it around retrospectively, and it's a very, very tough thing to do. So again, looking forward to next time I do it, I will be much, much more focused on, you know, just kind of surgically focused on who the thing I'm building is for. Yeah. that's. I think that's one of the key things I've taken away from fundamentally failing, and again, in my case, the, the, the failure was was mine as, as founder, um, as CEO, to kind of have to leave that business um, uh, but my failure there was that not understanding that buying unit sufficiently well yes, and yes. although I had solved a clever problem not being absolutely surgically precise in making somebody's life 10 times better yes. overnight yes. if I'd got that right you know even though they were b2b customers they would have been paying with their own money if I was threatening to take that technology away yes. and because they weren't I now think that was just product market fit we weren't there we were scaling and worrying about all sorts of things that were several steps ahead of where we were because we hadn't got to that place where that customer would have complained and you know I know when Facebook was down people rang 911 to go mm, like Facebook's mm, not here mm, mm. <laughs> national emergency you know there was nobody kind of like probably noticing if our feed hadn't come through that that evening yeah and that was the what, thing I should have what point on. in the journey do you think that happened I mean was, was there a point when you suddenly realized that you'd been convincing yourself but nobody else was convinced or or well, in our case, because it was enterprise, it was a long mm -hmm. buying cycle, and then people would typically sign up for maybe a six-month pilot. And I didn't understand how they were often using that six-month pilot. They were using that six-month pilot to learn stuff, to get information, and then to be able to blame somebody else. So operations were using our technology to prov prove to their boss that it was marketing's fault. Mm -hmm. So a success outcome for them, but it wasn't getting the traction in the wider company mm -hmm. because it was trying to do too many things for too many people. And we know it's similar to you. We had these different stakeholder mm. groups, um, and so my last kind of role in that had been to try to focus that right down to solving one person's pain perfectly, to the point that you know they would fight me if I tried to take sure. it away. Sure. Um, could we have got there? Probably. I hope the company does get there because I'm still a shareholder. <laughs> um, but. Um, it was very, very difficult on how little money we'd ever had and mm. how much, how little time we had left. Mm. And it's so difficult in inter I mean, I, I, I know, I've never done B2C in the way you have, so mm. I always think the grass is greener on the B2C side and the enterprise kills you. But, you know, from your experience, it sounds like B2C is just as hard and, and that kills you too. Yeah, well, well yeah, it can do. I mean, I think, the, I think the prize is potentially much higher with B2C um, because you can reach a, a huge market in theory very, very quickly. Whereas with B2B, you're really having to be out there selling in a very traditional way to people to, to buy your product. Um, but yeah, B2C is a much, I think a much, much harder thing to do because you have 
much, much less direct contact with your individual customers. It's just not possible if you've got tens of thousands of people mm-hmm. using your system. You can't know them all intimately, whereas if you've got, you know, a hundred um, commercial users, you can get to know them quite well. So um, I'm going to start to wrap this up, I suppose, to come back to the to the key question. I recognise that moment. You recognise that moment of that absolute fear, mm-hmm. <laughs> terror, mm. um, awfulness of starting to think this might not work. Mm. For the founder or the CEO or or or, or anybody actually in, in a, as an entrepreneur in that position, what what do you do next? I mean, what 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 would you do next time? Perhaps that you didn't do last time when you started to have that fear. So I think I think that um, there was a moment where myself and my co-founder kind of realised and certainly vocalised this to one another that we we weren't personally emotionally invested in the success sorry not in the success of the company we were absolutely invested in that but um emotionally invested in the in the in the product as much we we we, i think we we reached this much more objective view about the product and what we were going to do with it which was a healthy thing because um i've I've written spoken a bit about this after it happened but you know, I, I for for a long time I was Mr. Blip Photo. The yeah. Blip Photo and, and was, me were yeah, yeah were, exactly were inextricably the same. We linked. were inextricably yeah. thing. And that's that's a that's a tough thing. So if if that so you know if that goes, like half of your personality is going to be stripped away. So on a kind of very personal, emotional level, that's I think something to overcome. I didn't when when we called in the, the liquidators, I genuinely didn't feel that. I, I personally felt actually quite, you know, sure in myself and so on. But the world around me was like Christ, you know, Joe, half of them's missing now, and it's it was, it was that was a, that was a very very strange thing. So I think I think overcoming that, I think being quite objective about this and understanding that you're different from your from your product or your company is a vital vital thing. If you if you don't have that, if you're sort of embracing your product and you know think the two of you are inextricably linked, you're not going to end up in a good place. I, I do think though, looking back, because of the way we raised these. You know, smallish chunks of money. Every time we raised one of those, there was a very strong possibility that it wouldn't, we wouldn't pull it off, and we would have to, mm. you know, shut the doors and go home. So I kind of, I suppose, in a way, come to terms with that idea as well, and that allowed me to be a wee bit more gung ho about what we were going to do. That's really interesting because I would say the same thing. I was, I was never afraid of failing. Mm-hmm. I still, I still am not afraid of failing. Mm-hmm. I will do it all over again. Absolutely, will do it over again. I will mm-hmm. definitely try again. I'm not even an apologies to any of the investors who may, may hear this. Uh, I'm not even afraid of losing people's money. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest pressure for me was that over link between me and the business. And, and, and the way it personally worked out for me was yes. I, I, I walked around the corner and overheard I was being put on gardening leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you know, everything went silent, no emails, no phone calls, mm. go and sit in a box for three months. Mm. And that was, that was personally very stressful. And I think next time going in, I will definitely build out with a bigger co-founding yes. team. From the beginning, I won't have a board until I need one. I will treat that board with a lot more um, functionality as mm-hmm. opposed to as my advisors and collaborators. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think, but I think the core thing I will would still do the same. I would try everything I could damn well think of, and everything mm. my team could think of, and try it and try it and try it until we ran out of money. Absolutely. Well, I mean, failure is an interesting world, world, or an interesting word rather. So, um, okay, so we we failed to realize the 
potential that we and all our shareholders thought was in the product and in the company. But we didn't fail to do something remarkable. We didn't fail to put every ounce of energy and emotion that we could muster into the product. Um, you know, we didn't fail to actually ensure that Blip Photo as a platform and a community could continue beyond our involvement with it. So, you know, okay, we, we failed to do one thing, but I don't see actually 90% of what we did as it's any sort of failure. I actually Absolutely. see a huge amount of success in there. And it's important to remember that I'm, I'm in a place now where I would never, ever be had I not been through that four or five year experience. And I've absolutely no regrets about doing it. And I think I think you should, if you're going to go into this or are in this, you should remember that when you come out the other end, okay, you're going to feel shit for a while, but you're going to have a whole kind of arsenal of experience, skills and whatever, which very, very few people have. And that's a, that's a good thing. Brilliant. I'm going to leave it there because I couldn't say it better myself. Good. Thank you. Thank Pleasure. you, Joe. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast with this week's episode featuring Vicky Brock and Joe Tree. To submit your question for a future episode, visit vickybrock.com slash podcast.